Chapter 1, verses 8 through 16. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who were of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them and in, the, in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, before I start preaching, I bless your word. I pray that your word would be that two-edged sword that divides bone and marrow, soul and spirit. Teach us from your word, Lord God. May this not be my philosophy, my thoughts, but to present before your people the word that you would have for them. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. After the resurrection, Peter, the apostle, went back to his fishing business. That is where Christ finds him. The resurrected Christ finds him fishing on the lake once again. When Jesus reinstates Peter, he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? That these Christ is referring to are not the other disciples. Many, many misunderstand this. While the disciples are around, they're at somewhat of a distance. In fact, Peter mentions John. What about him? Christ is referring to the nets, to the boats, to his old life. Do you love me more than these? This past week, this past week, anytime I had a hunger pain, anytime I had an inkling for entertainment with my phone or with a movie, I would say, I, yes, Lord, you know that I love you more than these. That is what fasting is about, is we say to these things, not that they're necessarily in and of themselves bad, Fishing isn't bad, but do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. The most famous fast, when talking about fasting in the Bible, the most famous fast should be the fast of Christ in the desert for 40 days with no food or water. Um, But that doesn't sell cookbooks. The most well-known fast in the Bible at the culture at large is Daniel's fast. Um, which provides many more opportunities to sell books and other merchandising opportunities. In truth, I've never read a book on the Daniel fast, so I just want to be very clear. Um, If you think I'm just going to be bashing it today, you're wrong because I don't know anything about it to be able to say good or bad. Um, My one concern, though, is when it comes to the Daniel fast or the Daniel diet, is are people fasting for the same reasons that Daniel fasted? Are they fasting with the same heart, the same attitude within them as what Daniel was? Because Daniel was not fasting to get healthy. That was a secondary effect. Daniel was not fasting to lose weight. He was actually fasting to gain weight. We have two fasts of Daniel in the book of Daniel. We have um, chapter 10, which was a fast of humility. God had shown him a vision. In order to feel like he could explain the vision, he had a fast very similar to the one that's in chapter 1, that which Becca had read today. The primary reason for both was not his health. And the second one, his health was not probably even a result of the fast. In both instances, his fast wasn't wasn't what most of the Bible would even call a fast, but according to the strict definition of the word fast, it was a fast, though be it a partial fast, one of vegetables and water. He lived in a time called in the Bible a time of the, the time of the Gentiles. In Luke chapter 21, verse 24, Jesus speaks of future events, including the destruction of Jerusalem and his return. He says that Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. 
Daniel lived during the beginning of the time of the Gentiles. What the time of the Gentiles mean is in a time where God would give over Israel and the Jews to the rule of the Gentiles. Daniel's at the very beginning of these times. In fact, we have verse 1 of chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jeroboam, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem to besiege it. By the way, if you haven't already done this, go to your Bibles, Daniel chapter 1. We'll be following it straight through. This is not... This is the beginning of what we call the exile period, but it's not the exile. Judah will endure for two more kings. But during the time of Jeroboam, um, Judah is defeated. Nebuchadnezzar defeats him, takes that, their king into captivity. He does come back. But during that time, he also takes many of the best and the brightest out of Israel of noble birth. And Daniel is one of these people it is a time where you are seeing the twilight of Judah, and they've already seen the evening of the northern kingdom of Israel. The time of the Gentiles is a time when Gentiles have power over Israel. It starts with the exile, and then the, and then the Roman occupation, even to the time of the Holocaust, and it even persists today, even though Israel is a sovereign state. We see this all the time. It wasn't, it wasn't until just two years ago where the United States actually recognized that Jerusalem was the capital of Israel. I hope you understand the significance of that. I'm not going to get into the politics, but let me just say this. Canada, Canada doesn't say New York is America's capital. They say Washington, D.C. You know why? Because we say it's Washington, D.C. But so many in the world say Tel Aviv is the capital of Israel because they don't really believe Israel is a sovereign nation. That's, that's a huge issue. And I think the clearest example of this is on the temple mound is not the temple of the Lord, but the dome of the rock, a, a Muslim tabernacle, not the tabernacle of the Lord. If I were to describe the setting of Daniel chapter 1, um, it would be this. Life is unfair, painful, and full of suffering. So maybe at this point in the sermon, you're thinking, this does not, this does not sound like a very encouraging sermon, Pastor Jason, but just give me some time. The great sage and philosopher, the, great, the dread pirate Robert said, life is pain, highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. Jesus seems to agree with this in his statement when he says, in this world, you will have trouble. Or read many of the Psalms or the epistles or Daniel chapter 1, and realize that Daniel and his three companions, this wasn't their fault. They had done nothing wrong to be taken from their homes, put into a foreign land to learn their language, to learn their ideas, and to never have their freedom. They were not criminals jailed righteously for breaking, for breaking of the law. They were kids taken from their homes, brought as slaves to a foreign land, to have everything stripped away, including their own names, so that they could better serve an enemy king of an enemy nation. Life is pain, and I have nothing to sell, so I won't say any different, but life isn't only pain. In fact, if life is pain, we must look towards one who can overcome life. If the world is pain, we should look towards somebody who could overcome the world. Jesus said, in this world you have trouble, yes, but he also said, take heart, I have overcome the world. This was Daniel's reality. He did not believe that there was, a, there was a silver lining to this cloud. He did not look on the bright side of his life. He did not expect to find brightness in, the, in this life he was going to. He knew that there was a light inside of him. It's the light inside of everyone who bows to the true majesty that is in heaven. This is Daniel's reality. There is no bright side in this situation, but the light is in the person who has bowed down before the throne of the majesty in heaven. That is the light in any situation. This is a lesson even the great king of Babylon will one day learn when he has his reason stripped from him. He controls the world, but loses his mind and eats the grass like an animal. Such an interesting part, because in Babylonian, um, in Babylonian, um, literature and, and, and reports during that time. Not that they were exhaustive, so take this with a grain of salt, but there is a seven-year period where there's just nothing. And if you remember, for seven years, he roamed around like a cow eating grass. 
That had to have been interesting for visiting dignitaries. Who's, who's the guy just roaming around naked eating grass? Oh, that, that's the king. Don't worry about him. My wife and her, and, and her sisters, they love the, the cartoon Aladdin. And they would do, like many kids, and when they're eating their food, they're like, I'm going to eat like Jasmine. And it's like all dainty. It's like, I'm going to eat like a boo, and like eating with their hands. And then, like, they, then they're saying, like, I, I'm going to eat like Jafar. And they just like shove their face into the food because he's a bad guy. So it makes me think of this because I always make this joke of like the sultan having somebody over and uh, they're like about to eat and like Jafar is just attacking the food and it's like, don't mind him, he was raised on the streets. The great king of Babylon, he will find out what Daniel already knew is that you shouldn't be looking towards the situation to bring you happiness and joy. Joy is within you. The light is not in the situation. The light is within you if you have bowed before the throne of the majesty in heaven. Daniel chapter 1 starts off with a bad situation, yes, but it is also a chapter of choices. We often say we do not have a choice when we've already made a choice and we want to comfort ourselves. We all have a multiplicity of excuses for why we are not all that we can be. And this is what you see in every culture, right? You have a number of people who through their Maybe it is the situation. Maybe it's 99% of the situation, but 1% of the situation was their own choices. They don't want to own up to it. And they want to blame everything. They want to blame politicians. You want to blame the American dream. You want to blame other. You want to blame people that you know, your mother, your father, your aunts, your uncles, that you are not all that you can be. Fine, but the only blood that's on your hands is your own. You have choices to make. There is always a choice to make. You might think, what choice did Daniel and his three companions have? They were taken by force to a foreign land to learn the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. I'll explain that in a second here. They could have blamed. They could have just went along to get along. Whether it's your own fault or like Daniel and his three friends, you are literally taken from your people, given new names, and by force living in a foreign land, you still have a choice whether or not you will become obedient to the Lord. The language and literature of the Chaldeans. Let me explain that. Let's go a little further into the text, into the chapter. The king wants attendants that he can take that, that he can take a personal interest in that will be loyal to him. This has very much to do with the politics of Babylon. So don't fall asleep just yet, because it's important for you to know this as you're reading in, in the book of Daniel. This might seem weird, but this is what the Babylonians did. They would conquer a nation, they would take royalty and smart, beautiful, charismatic people, and they would then enslave them to the king, and then they would put them in charge over a province. Because who, whose, loyalty they, whose loyalty do they have? Not to themselves. They can't, they can't then have a line of their own. It's only to the king himself. And that is where Daniel is. But in order for this to happen, he needs to re-educate them. Daniel and his companions were the best and the brightest. But the king wants them broken down and re-educated. That term, re-education. I use that on purpose. It's come to mean something very evil. And well, it is. Nebi, and I'm going to say that shortening for Nebuchadnezzar, isn't the first to want this. MTV wanted to own a generation. That is why Generation X is also called the MTV generation. Culture has always wanted this, to take the best and the brightest and to remake them in its own image. Everything in our culture is bent to do this, make no mistake. Everything has a message they're trying to tell you. Everything in our culture especially wants to capture the next generation. Parents, train up your children in the way they should go. They have, a, they have a war they need to fight tomorrow. Not to be conformed to the likeness of this world, but honestly, so do you. This world wants to retrain you in the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Chaldeans, that word Chaldeans, it was a tribe in the ancient Near East, and they were known as soothsayers. They were known as deeply religious people. So they, became, so they became kind of a word you'd use then for anybody who would be a wise person, a religious person. It became a word for the culture of the Babylonians was the Chaldeans. So while they were an actual people, they were also a word for soothsayers, educated people, for people that you would aspire to be. It's very much like the uh, word, and this, you're going to learn something today, the word we have in the English, gypsy. Um, there are no gypsies. We call Romanians, certain Romanians, gypsies, but they're not gypsies. Gypsy comes from the word Egyptian. 
um, in early part of the 20th century, early part of the 19th century, there's something called Egyptomania. Um, certain tombs were being discovered and everybody, anything exotic, they'd called Egyptian or Egyptian for sort or gypsy for even shorter. So if you encountered perhaps a certain tribe of people over in Romania who they thought were eccentric, they called them gypsies. And that is where we get the word gypsy today. In fact, when we say um, the byword of I've, I, I got jibbed, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a racist thing of attributing that to, a, to that. And so it's a long story short, but that's what Chaldeans, when you read that in the book of Daniel, what that's talking about, not necessarily a certain people, but an attitude, a culture. And Nebuchadnezzar wanted them trained in the language and the literature of the Chaldeans to take the best and the brightest and remake them in his own image. Everything in our culture is bent towards this. Like I said before, we pray for our children. We pray for you because everything that we are exposed to, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, you are to be re-educated in the language of the Chaldeans. In Daniel's day, Babylon changed his name to Belshazzar. Today, Babylon convinces us to change our own names, genders, even species, or anything that we should think we should learn from something for the way the Babylon looks to control and remake us. It is the language and the literature. Control these two things and you control people. Except it doesn't need to be a whole language anymore. It's just words that you change and you keep changing and you keep changing. Don't have the young people read books that, um, that force them to think critically or to think for themselves or even about the underpinning of our very society. No, don't have them read at all. Just watch movies. And if that's too long, have them watch um, TV shows. And if that's too long, limit the number of series. Or, you know, you just have, just have people spend hours and hours and hours, eight plus hours a day watching eight second videos, whether that's on TikTok or Instagram. And I'm not just talking about all the awful people out there. I'm talking about us in here, me specifically. Because the one thing I found out this last week about not having my phone is I waste a whole lot of time on social media. And how often do we ask ourselves, what is this pouring into me? Because everything's pouring into you. Everything is part of the language and literature of the Chaldeans that it wants you to be trained up in instead of being trained up in the ways of the Lord. Here's the sad news is you live in Babylon. You live in this culture. You live just like Daniel, Daniel um, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You live in this culture and you can't get away from it. But while you live in Babylon you and you have to learn the language and the literature of the Chaldeans, you don't have to eat the king's food, and you do not have to eat, drink the king's wine. Now we come to verse 8. And a feast from the king's own table is set before Belshazzar, formerly called Daniel. But Daniel understood the words Jesus would speak hundreds of years in the future. I have food to eat that you do not know about. He has a hunger that wine and choice foods just simply couldn't satisfy. His fast was truly a feast. Daniel's fast isn't as important, but the way Daniel fasted is not as important as the reasons. We don't have a concern about being kosher today, but we do have a concern, as Daniel did, about being holy. Not to eat at the king's table, but to feast at the king of kings and the lord of lords' table. Daniel's fast was a feast of conscience, of faith, and holiness. And the first one, a feast of conscience. The word in the English, conscience, uh, is comprised of two words, con meaning with, and science, which is knowledge. This is very similar to the understanding of the word that's in the Greek, which is your inward testimony, meaning your inward thoughts, what your aspirations are. Every human has eternity set in their hearts. They know right from wrong. We all muddy our own consciences as we do, what is evil in the sight of God and in our own sight. In fact, in the book of Romans, Paul makes this clear that the Gentiles can't even live by their own standard of rules. And that's everybody. That's absolutely everybody. No matter what, they're like, this is your rules. These are my rules. If everybody was to be honest, yeah, I don't even live up to my own rules. And that is our conscience. Make no, mis make no mistake, no matter how cool someone is and they try, to, they, they try to be cool about their own sin, we all know that the bill comes due. 
All of us with knowledge did the opposite of what we know to be right. In the great courtroom of the Lord, when we stand before, before God, none of us will be able to say, I didn't know any better. Our own conscience will be able to testify that, in fact, yes, we did know better. When we talk about having a biblical context, the um, con- um, con- um, conscience, as the Bible describes it, as believers, we are supposed to live with a clear conscience, how it is being informed by the word and led by the spirit. This is the definition of conscience we are working with today in the scriptures. It is being informed by the word and led by the spirit. Being informed by the word gives us knowledge, but it is being led by the spirit that gives us the will and more importantly, the nature to draw from, to live according to the spirit. And this is why having a clear conscience is not even so much a work as it is living according to the way that God has remade us in Christ Jesus. That's the fruit of the spirit. A tree doesn't bend over and make fruit. It produces fruit. This, the Spirit gives us the nature to draw upon so that we may live by the Spirit to have a clear conscience. In 1 Timothy, if, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this, some have shipwrecked, have made shipwreck of their faith. Every generation sees this among those who outwardly say they are part of the faithful. What I'm talking about here is compromise. People, people of conscience, because we see it in the news, right? People who see moral and then they fall and it's a big how to do. People, you know, there's a saying, every person has a price. We have these deep convictions, but then when the rubber meets the road, what are we going to do? I remember somebody who had a deep conviction and you tell everybody about it that you shouldn't take out loans. He's like, it's, it's, it's against all these things. It's immoral. It's wrong. And then when he wanted to buy a new house that he couldn't afford, he took out a loan. Every person has, it's, as I was saying, every person has a price, but Daniel's price was already bought by God. And that's the difference for us. Our price was already purchased by Christ. So we have no price. We should be living by this clear conscience. There are, there are things that are sins for some and not for others, but that list isn't very big. If there's something specifically in the scripture that says it's wrong, just because you have a conviction that it's right, it doesn't make it right. But there are certain things that having a more tender conscience will be a sin for you that is not for others. And that's something for you personally to know. And if you were to go against that, if your conscience is telling you this is wrong for you to go against this, you'll find it much, and much easier and easier to start violating your conscience when it comes to the, the direct commands of the Lord himself. In Romans, it talked about food being sacrificed to idols. For me personally, it's alcohol. As an AG minister, I'm forbidden to drink alcohol of any sort. Even if I wasn't, I still wouldn't. Not even a sip. Why? Well, while it might be up for debate whether or not it's a sin to drink alcohol, I know it is for me, because that's what my conscience tells me. My conscience tells me even, even just a sip, and I don't put that on others. That's for me personally. Maybe it's the way I grew up. Maybe it's all the destruction and, dis- and destroyed families I see in the wake of alcoholism. But for me personally, even if I wasn't a minister, I wouldn't, I wouldn't drink any alcohol. That doesn't make me more righteous than anybody. It's just that's what my conscience tells me. I know if I were it'd be so much easier for me to justify everything else. Daniel and his, four, and his three companions, they come to Babylon, and unlike all the other Jewish prelates who are in part of their graduating class, they decide, here and no further. We couldn't fight against the soldiers who brought us here. We are forced to learn the language and the literature of the Chaldeans, but what we put into our body is our choice, and we won't do this. Verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with, or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. The word right here that is translated in English, resolved, is two words in the, uh, in the Hebrew. It is lib and sum. Sum means to put in place, to put, to set, to lay, and to lay violent hands upon. 
It means to steady ourselves, to put steel in our spine, to make a resolve that I will not bend. Not here, not now. I like, it even means to lay violent hands upon, because to decide that I'm going to live for God instead of living for this world, you have to have steel in your spine. If you don't, you will bend towards it. You will just get, go along to get along. In first century, in Rome, first century, they thought they were losing some of their grip, so they would make people, especially Christians, in front of a, in front of a portrait of Caesar, take a pinch of incense and put it into a fire and say, Caesar is Lord. That is why Romans is such a revolutionary book when it says to declare Jesus Christ as Lord, because Caesar can't be Lord if Jesus Christ is Lord. About 300, more than 300 years after the death of Christ, Rome was a much different place than that. It was starting to become Christianized. And there was actually two different factions in Rome. And one of those factions who had initially agreed to Christianize decided to go back on that and to go back to the old ways of the Romans. And so this, this uh, under Caesar, you could call him, he's not a Caesar, but he was um, of that kind of station. He wanted everybody, especially his legions, to declare fealty to the old Roman gods. And this finally got to uh, people called the Thundering Legion. Forty of their members were not just cultural Christians, but they were on fire, spirit-filled Christians. The Roman governor stood resolutely before the 40 Roman soldiers of the Thundering Legion. He said, I command you to make an offering to the Roman gods. If you will not, you will be stripped of your military status. The 40 soldiers all believed firmly in the Lord Jesus. They knew they must not deny him or sacrifice to the Roman idols no matter what the governor would do to them. Camidas spoke for the legion. Nothing is dearer or greater honor to us than Christ our God. They refuse to obey the edict, choosing instead to obey a higher authority. You shall, not, you, shall, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves an idol. You shall not bow down to them and worship them. The governor then tried other tactics to get them to deny their faith. First, he offered them promises of money and imperial honors. Then he threatened them with torments and torture, with the rack and with fire. Camidius replied, You offer us money that remains behind and glory that fades away. You seek to make us friends of the emperor, but alienate us from the true king. We desire one gift, the crown of righteousness. We are anxious for one glory, the glory of the heavenly kingdom. We love honors, we love honors, but those of heaven. You threaten fearful torments and call, uh, call our godliness a crime, but you will not find us faint-hearted or attracted to this life or easily stricken with terror for the love of God we are prepared to endure any kind of torture. The governor was enraged. They were ordered to remove their armor and clothing, herded onto the middle of a frozen lake, standing there naked to die slowly and painfully. He set soldiers to guard them to prevent, prevent them from escaping. They were told, you may, came, you may come ashore when you are ready to deny your faith. The 40 encouraged each other as though they were going to battle. How many of our com companions in arms fell on the battlefront, showing themselves loyal to an earthly king? Let us not turn aside, O warriors. Let us not turn our backs in, in flight from the devil. To tempt and to increase the torment of the Christians, fires were built on shore. With warm baths, blankets, clothing, and hot food and drink close by, the mother of the youngest soldier was present and encouraged her son from the bank. The men began to pray, O Lord, 40 wrestlers have come forth to fight for thee. Grant that 40 wrestlers may gain the victory. As daylight faded, 40 warriors continued resisting, courageously bearing their pain in spite of the bitter cold, some, quick, um, some walking quickly to and fro, some already sleeping that sleep that which ends in death. 
and some standing lost in prayer, rejoicing in the hope of soon being with the Lord. Finally, one legionary could endure the suffering no longer, so coming to the temptation and left the ice for the warm house that was guarded by a centurion named Semphriarius and his men. On the ice, the remaining 39 stood still, stood firm. Still the petition went up from those to speak O Lord, 40 wrestlers have come forth to fight for thee. Grant that 40 wrestlers may gain the victory. Their prayer was answered to the surprise of everyone. That same Roman centurion was touched by his comrade's bravery and the Holy Spirit moved upon his heart. He threw off his armor, weapons, and clothing and ran to the 39, exclaiming, Christ, exclaiming loudly, I am a Christian. They welcome him into their company And so the number of martyrs remained all at 40. By morning, 40 glorious spirits, sanctimonious among them, had entered into the presence of Christ. So many, when offered by the same thing, would go back to the comforts of this life. So many would say, I would die for Christ, but very few have steel in their spine to be able to live for him, to have sum come about them. The other word is lieb, which means the heart of the inner man, the will, the mind, the heart, the understanding. It's like he made of his very soul a shield of faith to make his stand. This is the actions. This is an action that we must do. It does not naturally naturalize Naturally, we compromise. And naturally, we don't even realize how many compromises we've made until it's almost too late. Naturally, we make excuses. Well, I'm already in the land of Babylon. I'm already in this culture. I'm already speaking the language. I'm already reading the literature. So what does it matter if I eat from the king's table, if I drink from the king's wine goblet? But soon and leave to resolve in our heart that I will not defile myself before the Lord. To be like the holy 40 martyrs of the thundering legion who said, Lord, you have brought 40 wrestlers out. Grant that the 40 may have victory. There's one thing last few years as being your pastor has God has put on my heart is to make a call to all the faithful. Stay on the ice with me. Stay on the ice with me. God, grant that these 40 may have the victory. That we would also sum and lieb that resolve in our hearts that we will not defile ourselves. It was a feast of faith, number two. A feast of faith. A lot, if not all, compromise comes from a lack of faith. Abraham and Sarah fell into that category. They did not believe that God would fulfill his promise to them, so they figured they have to help him out. We have all kinds of ways of making our lack of faith seem reasonable. We have all kinds of ways of making our lack of faith seem reasonable. No, I have to do this or I'm going to be short at the end of the month for bills. Now, it didn't matter that we didn't need to do X, Y, and Z to do that before. But this, but this month, we can get ahead if we simply just lie on our taxes. Or we deceive somebody else into giving us more or something to that effect. Or we just say, well, well, I have to do, I mean, the heart wants what the heart wants. That's probably one of the best lies our culture has come up, has come up with since the heart is deceitful amongst all things. We confuse our heart with our conscience all the time. But a conscience is being informed by the word, led by the Holy Spirit. Our heart is just doing what we believe is right. I talked about how Daniel 1 is about choices. You have a choice. Will you choose sanctification over sin, conscience over experience, faith over fear? Let me continue reading verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and your drink. For, they, um, for why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths um, who, are, who are of your own age? So would you endanger my head with the king? Most hearing that would say, okay, well, I mean, Jesus said I need to love my neighbor, so I'm just going to drink the wine. I'm just going to eat the food. And how easy it is to make our excuses, our lack of faith, into seeming reasonable and a, and a good idea. The last couple of years has taught me anything. People would just twist the words of Jesus into, well, that, this is loving your neighbor, is to drink the wine and eat the, and eat the food. 
But, you know, Daniel had a different perspective. Now, Daniel had a love for this man as well. And this is something we should take too. We should never arrogantly in people's faces, because that's the way the world does, right? We have a disagreement, so we are going to go at war with each other. But with love, with, with, a, with a timidity of spirit, we tell the person, we tell the person as Daniel did, look at my faith. And that's what Daniel says. He says, okay, test this out. 10 days, just 10 days. See if we're not better off than the rest. I would, I would, I would paraphrase his response like this. Look at my faith. Look at how it endures. Look at how my God takes care of me and sees that I am unafraid. Dear beloved of the Lord, that is one of our greatest witnesses to this world, is that this world can see we do not fear as the world fears, that we have an inward confidence. Pastor John MacArthur said, biblical joy consists of a deep and abiding confidence that all is well, regardless of the circumstance and difficulty. I didn't ask Phil and Anne if I could share this, but I've shared it before, so I feel like I've got carte blanche too. When Phil was in the hospital literally dying, him and Anne had a joy about them. I saw it myself and many others did. I don't know how many of you know this, but his doctor told him to make his calls and make his goodbyes. That's how far along he was. But they never lost their joy. Not knowing whether he'd live or die, they'd never lost their joy. That is, that's powerful. Daniel, he's a 15-year-old punk saying to the chief of the eunuchs, look at my faith and realize I'm not afraid. I understand you're afraid you're going to lose your life, but just 10 days, you can see what God will do. You'll see what my God can do. It's the supernatural over the natural. One reason I am somewhat maybe skeptical of the Daniel fast is I've, seen, I've yet to see a testimony like this, which is, I'm, I, was, I was so scrawny. Then I did the Daniel fast and I gained 60 pounds. Nobody ever says in the Daniel fast how much weight they gained. And the scripture says they were fatter in flesh. If you're doing the Daniel fast and you're not gaining weight, maybe you want to maybe you want a refund. Um, that's what happened during this fast. It doesn't make earthly sense. There's not a lot of fat content in celery. You don't naturally get fatter the more vegetables you eat, but that's the miracle. What makes sense is what the chief priest would have thought, which is that they would lose weight, but they gain weight instead. In verse 15, it says that they were fatter in the flesh in the, at the end of 10 days. So if you do the... Dan- oh, I already said that. All, that. all that to say was that Daniel stepped out in faith. And that's a very important thing. Daniel knew he had to be obedient. He didn't understand how that was going to work out. He didn't even know at the end. He, God didn't tell him, do this for 10 days. I will make you gain weight. He just, he knew that I can't defile myself with the king's food. Maybe he would have thought of something at the end of 10 days if he didn't, if he didn't look better. I don't know. It doesn't say that he was better at 10 days. But Daniel knew this. Obedience is mandatory. Understanding is not. Obedience is mandatory. Understanding is not. Sometimes there's a situation, how am I going to continue living according to my principles, according to my own conscience that God has given me in this situation? Well, step out in faith because obedience is mandatory. Understanding is not. Finally, it was a feast of holiness. A feast of holiness. This fast was all, was all about fasting as a believer should be, which is to be holy. That is why we fasted this last week. This is why you should fast in your life. It's to be holy. Now, we misunderstand holiness a lot because we often conflate it with righteousness. Righteousness is doing the right thing. And righteousness is a part part of biblical holiness. But biblical holiness is more than righteousness. It literally means to be set apart. That was the nation of Israel. God set them apart from the other nations to be his holy possession. That's why we have the dietary laws that were like, they couldn't eat shellfish, but I like lobster. Why are all these things? It wasn't that it was necessarily moral or immoral. In fact, many of them are just morally neutral. It was that you are a special possession of the Lord. You are holy. Everything about those laws in Leviticus that we we all lie about when we do our one-year Bible that said we, we read it all, all that was to say, it screamed out, we are holy before God. We have no other gods before us. We are God's special possession. Holiness isn't the same thing as righteousness. Though righteousness is a part of holiness, holiness means that there is something different about us. 
It's not just that you strive to do the right thing. It's the why. The why makes all the importance. Everyone's trying to improve their life, be the best version of them. I'm not trying to be the best version of me. I'm trying to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. Because he who has called you has called you to be holy. Let's go back to our text here. When you read about the weird laws in Leviticus, what you're reading about is not moral versus immoral. It's about, it's about God, what God wants for his people. It's them for, for them to be different, to be set apart from others. How to be holy. Their names, their languages, their literature, their diet was screaming to all the world, we are the people of God. Daniel is a young man who has had everything stripped from him. We tend to think of Daniel with a long, flowing beard, older, like when it was time for the lion's den. His story starts off when he was about 14, 15. We're not exactly sure, but he was a very young, young man in that time. Um, Who's 15 here? Raise your hand. I'm calling you out. Raise your hand if you're 15. Jeb is 15. Anybody else? Well, if I find out later and you lie, I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) Jeb, right there, Jeb. That's Daniel. And take a good look at Jeb. Young man, Daniel. Imagine Jeb being taken away from his mom and dad. He's going to go now live in some other country, an enemy of the United States. Like Russia invades the United States, like in Red Dawn, and they take Jeb away. And now he's going to learn Russian. And he's going to learn the religion of the Russians. He's going to learn the literature of the Russians. He's going to be perhaps a governor in Russia one day. He said everything. Daniel's had everything stripped from him. His mother and father, his land, which, was, which is everything to a person back then. It's not much to us. Like you hear what I talked about before. Maybe you thought, well, it's not so bad. It's like an exchange program. He's never going back though. Everybody he knew, everybody he loved up until that point, it's done. Everything about him was stripped away. His own language, what he could read. In fact, we're not sure whether or not he was a eunuch. I I, I tend to believe he was. His own masculinity was taken from him. The one last bit he had was what he put into his body. His name, which meant God is my judge, the land of his fathers, his freedom his mother and father, his people, maybe even his own masculinity, the last bit that said, I am a Jew, I am a person of the people of God, I am an heir of the promise of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I may be a slave in Babylon, but I am a citizen of a kingdom, not of this world, whose king will sit on the throne of his father David and rule it forever. The one thing was what he put into his body. If you and I cared about holiness the way Daniel did, we would see revival. When talking about holiness, those who have lived a life of compromise are quick to accuse others of legalism. That was Old Testament law, Pastor Jason. We're in the New Testament freedom. Well, you don't get much more New Testament than 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. How are you different, or are you? Are you different, or are you indistinguishable from others? Even last week, you could have, you could have participated in our fast and still be just like all the rest of this world. I and mean, the rest of the world does fast. There's something called intermediate fasting, and it's for health reasons. You could have been just like that. Or when somebody asks you, well, why does your church fast? Did you say, we fast because... We fast as just an outward sign of the holiness God has called us to. How are you different? Do you love the things the world loves? Do you use the language of the Chaldeans and read their literature? Daniel had no choice, and to the extent neither do we, we live in this culture, but like Daniel, we make our choice to be holy. Making church a priority when others say it's non-essential. To actually meet together. We don't let... We don't let what we put into our bodies or into our minds control us, but we have control over them. This is true freedom. Freedom. The great lie of sin is do what you want and you will be free. If any of you have dealt strongly with addiction, I think all of us deal with addiction to some point or another, but if you've ever dealt strongly with addiction, you know what I'm talking about. It says, 
just try me. It'll make you feel good. And then when you've had enough of it, when it's hurt you so bad, and you're like, I want, I want nothing to do with it, it's like, you don't get to make that decision. I have you now. When Cain was so dejected after Abel's offering was accepted and his wasn't, the Lord said, behold, sin is at the door. It desires to have you. I'm not going get, to get too into what that word have you means, but it would be as violent, terrible as you can imagine. And that is what the great lie of sin. Do this. This is your freedom. And then you find out the chains are already on me. To give a more, more fun illustration, it's like Pinocchio when he goes to the island. And you can do whatever you want. You can rip up the Mona Lisa. You can smoke. You can play pool. You can do all this stuff. But by morning, you're a donkey and you're being sold into slavery. And that is what sin does to us. It makes us donkeys that are sold into slavery. A freedom to live, a freedom that the Bible is talking about is a freedom from sin. To live the way we were created to live. It's a joy that's unspeakable and full of glory instead of a shipwrecked faith. Worship team, would you come up at this time? We save doing communion for this, for this Sunday specifically for a reason. When I was, when I was uh, doing my series on the seven deadly sins and I preached on gut, gluttony, we did communion then as well. I had the communion table, and I had another table filled with McDonald's food. I was going to do it again this week, but I didn't want people thinking I was like biased against McDonald's. It's just the only fast food we have in the town. Um, and I asked, which do you seek to fulfill you? Which do you seek to fill you up, the Lord's table or the table of the world? Do you seek to live according to the meat and the wine of the king of this world? or the bread and the wine of our Lord? Which do you seek to fill you up? This last week we fasted. Part of fasting is emptying ourselves out. We don't eat food. We don't fill ourselves with um, um, technological entertainment so that we may be empty so the Lord may fill us. Have you, ever, have you ever went to a party not realizing there was food so you ate before you came? And maybe you ate something that was just around your house, like box, ma box macaroni and cheese, or maybe it was something you didn't even want to eat, but you're like, I'm going to get hungry by 10 o'clock, so I better eat something right now. And then you, you show up, and your friend just made you the most incredible food. But here's the problem. You're already full. And no matter how good that food is, it looks disgusting because you're already filled to the brim. I remember um, Bill Maher, before he had his current show, it was a show called Politically Incorrect. And he'd have a Christian on there every now and again. It was like one Christian, and then everybody else wasn't. And this one Christian was on there, and he was saying how arrogant Christians were. And she said, it's not arrogant for one beggar to tell another beggar where to find bread. And what he said to her, I thought, was so telling. He said, but I'm not hungry. Problem with not just unbelievers, but Christians as well. When we fill up on the stuff of this world, we're not hungry for the table of the Lord because we've already drank in the king's wine and eaten his meat. Meat and wine dedicated to the things of this world, to demons, to idols. So we're not hungry for the things of the Lord. We're not hungry for holiness. We're not hungry for faith. We're not, we're not, we're not hungry to have a clear conscience because we're already filled up with all these other things. The easy, the easy ways to virtue, the easy ways to these things that are nothing at all, as opposed to having hunger for this. You know, as a pastor, you know, every, every sermon I look to glorify God in it because I believe that's why, I, I know that's why we're put on this earth to glorify God and the church should be certainly that. You know, it never really enters into my thought. It's like, well, are people going to like this or not? I, I don't genuinely care. But if I did, I wouldn't talk about holy. If I wanted to please you, I wouldn't talk about holiness, conscience, and faith. I talk about having your best life. I, I, I don't mean to throw shade at him, but um, I talk about having your best life now, how you make money using Bible principles and things that would appeal to your flesh instead of deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Christ and take it on faith. This will be better than living for yourself. But I tell you, the Lord's table will give you more satisfaction than the world's table ever could. That the choice foods and the, and the wine of the king are nothing compared to what the Lord gives. Today, we're going to be singing our last song in kind of a point of 
action on your part, I, I, I'm going to have the audacity to ask you to get out of your seat and come to the front if you choose the Lord's table over the world's table. If you are, we don't have any, you don't have to be a member of this church to take communion with us. We just ask that you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. You are part of his family. Once you take the emblems of the bread and the, and the juice, go back to your seat and hold them in place. We will take them together as a church, as a cooperative body of believers. But come up this morning if you are choosing the table of the Lord over the table of this world. Worship team, would you please play? And as they play, in fact, I'm going to go ahead and unveil them so nobody feels weird about doing that when you're the first one up. So today, if you choose the table of the Lord over the table of the world, please come up, take in your hands the symbols of the body and blood of Jesus Christ, and go back to your seat and hold those in place as we get ready to take communion together. If you physically cannot make it up, but you're still wanting to make it up, you can ask somebody beside you to come up. They say this mountain can't be moved. They say these chains will never
1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you please take in your hand the symbol of the Lord's body today? Lord, by eating this week, we declare that the joys of the Lord are greater than the joys of this world. That the Lord's table has more for us than the table of the king of this world. The king of this age, I should say, for you are the king of the world. The king of Babylon's bread does not taste as sweet as the bread of the Lord is the one thing that can satisfy us. For your broken body, our sins were forgiven. Who would have asked, who would have prayed such a prayer? Who would have had the audacity to say to God the Father, take your son whom you love up to the hill and sacrifice him? When you said so to Abraham, you told him to stop. But when it came to you, you went ahead for my regard. The table of the Lord is truly better than the table of this world. Would you please take and eat together? In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Would you please take in your hand the symbol the Lord's blood today. Father, as we get ready to drink from the cup, we realize that you drank a different cup. You drank a cup that we were supposed to drink, the wrath of God. You drank it until there was none left so that we could take, so that we could drink from the cup of the Lord's kindness, the cup of grace, the cup of mercy, the cup of adoption, the cup of betrothal, when we take and drink, we say that the wine of the Lord is greater than the wine of this world. It is greater and far better. Please take and drink together. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is a charge all of us have tomorrow, today, in the next moment. Proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Until that great glorious day, we have an age where we tell others of the good news of Jesus Christ so that they can join us in the air as well. And to join us in the presence of our King of Kings and our Lord of Lords. Worship team, please lead us in this song. We'll be ending with a benediction. But enjoy the table of the Lord today. May the Lord, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, 
that together you may be, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, I speak this blessing over this congregation today that we would live at harmony with one another, that people will know that we are Christians by our love and our tenderness and our desire to be like you, to be holy as you are holy, to be set apart as you are set apart, as you have set us apart, to be your bride, pure and spotless. With one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name do I pray. Amen. The worship team is going to continue playing. If you'd like prayer, the altars are open. But really, today's sermon is about going and living according to the holiness God has called us to. God bless you.